Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back to the Mind Valley podcast. This episode is with Jason Silva, and if you hadn't heard of Jason Silva, you should. He was once the host of a TV show called Brain Games. He went on to become a viral video star. But what made Jason Silva, Jason Silva, is that he has this beautiful, articulate, poetic way of speaking about awe, A-W-E, awe. He refers to awe as that feeling of wonder that you have in today's world. And Jason mixes science, technology, spirituality, to unite them and speak eloquently about why we need to be so damn in awe of our world today. So I put Jason on stage at A-Fest in Bali. The topic was on envisioning, the art of creating bold visions for the future. And Jason's job was to inspire people about why we need to be optimistic and excited regarding the future of humanity and just how far we've come. So check this out. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. It's an honor to be here with all of you woke humans. I feel lit up by your energy. My heart feels open, and I'm excited to share with you guys today. Some people know me from hosting Brain Games on the National Geographic Channel. And Brain Games is interesting because I kind of describe it as like Sesame Street for the brain. But the philosophical takeaway of the show really is that our brains perceive the world and then often misperceive the world. And reality is coupled to perception. And if you can mediate perception, well, you can change reality, at least subjective reality, the reality that allows you to take action in the world and exercise agency in the world and make your dreams come true in the world, right? And so the theme of this event, envision your future, I mean, that, I got to say, it just really turns me on, right? Because that's what we do, right? I mean, I believe we are all envisionaries, or that word from Disney, imagineers, right? It's such a freaking exhilarating word. Like we are imagineers. We have this capacity to conjure up these delightful future possibilities, choose the most amazing possibility, and then pull the present forward to meet those possibilities. One of my favorite poet futurist, Mr. Ray Kurzweil, wrote at the end of his book, The Singularity is Near, that our unique capacity to conjure up these virtual realities, because that's what they are in our imagination, these dreams, which of course, dreams do not lack reality. They are real patterns of information. So our capacity to conjure up these virtual realities in our minds combined with our modest-looking thumbs, was sufficient to engender a secondary force of evolution that we call technology. And he says it will continue until the entire universe is at our fingertips, until we infuse the cosmos with sentience, literally. So back to this theme of envisioneering, right? Envisioneering. So I'm passionate about human imagination. I'm passionate about human creativity. And again, this has turned into a passion for technology and innovation because I believe that technology is the embodiment of human creativity in the world. Technology is the literalization of human imagination in the world. Technology is how we turn the human mind inside out and how we impregnate the world with mind. The cognitive philosophers David Chalmers and Andy Clark in their extended mind thesis they describe technology as a scaffolding of mind that we use to extend our thoughts, our reach, and our vision. And it has always been so. There's historical precedent for this. If you go back 100,000 years to the savannas of Africa, when early hominids first picked up a stick on the ground and used that stick 
to reach a fruit that was on a really high tree branch. We've been using our sticks, our tools, our instruments to extend our reach, to transcend our boundaries, to redefine our limits. That is what it means to be human. As the philosopher Marshall McLuhan famously said, we build the tools and then the tools build us. We are in a symbiotic relationship with our tools. Our tools are extensions of our cognitive apparatus. They are appendages of our minds. They are our exoskeleton. Now, today we are living in an age of radical disruption. The world is being upended by technological acceleration. There is a vertigo. There is a sense that the rug is being pulled from underneath our feet. There is apprehension and there is excitement simultaneously all at once. We are disoriented, we are disjointed, we are terrified and we are exhilarated. And more than ever before, we need to be envisioneers to build the tools that will build us in return. But technology and innovation has always upended society. It has always changed the world. It has always been a disruptive force. The difference though, is that the world didn't used to change within our lifespans. Technology upended the world, but it did so over many generations. So the world that you were born into and that you died in didn't really change very much. That's not the case today. Today, within a year, the world is upended. Today, within a decade, the world is transformed, right? There are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. And that's what we're living through today. And the question, of course, is why? How do we begin to wrap our brains around why this vertigo, this acceleration has become so real, so felt, so visceral? And for me, the great aha moment was when I stumbled upon the work of Ray Kurzweil. He makes predictions about the future. He maps future trends, and he builds on what the founder of Intel Corporation, Gordon Moore, coined Moore's Law. And it's this uncanny, almost like a second law of nature, this notion that technology comes through us, but not from us. And though it is with us, it belongs not to us. Like we are engendering this self-organizing force in the universe, what Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine calls the technium, the seventh kingdom of life. And it turns out that technological innovation accelerates exponentially. Human beings evolved in a world that was linear and that was local. And now we live in a world that is global and that is exponential. And so we're future blind. We never see the future coming because it's counterintuitive to how we think about change. Our brain evolved in a world to immediately make an algorithmic calculation about how far away that lion was in the savanna and how quickly it was going to come over and eat us. A quick linear calculation, right? But we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world that is global and exponential. So we need to make a cognitive leap. We need to teach ourselves to think exponentially. We need to envision our future, not linearly, but exponentially. Now, a great example that Kurzweil uses to illustrate the difference between linear change and exponential change is this 30 steps example. I often cite it in my lectures around the world because it's a quick way to get people to understand the implications of exponential transformation. If you take 30 linear steps, one, two, three, four, five, by step 30, you get to 30. Duh. But if you take the same amount of steps exponentially, and I'm not really a math guy, but again, 30 linear steps gets you to 30. 30 exponential steps gets you to a billion. The same amount of steps gets you to a billion, and technology advances at this exponential rate. So that is the reason why the smartphone in your pocket today is a million times cheaper, a million times smaller, and a thousand times more powerful than what used to be a $60 million supercomputer that was half a building in size 40 years ago. Listen to that again. What used to cost $60 million and be the size of this auditorium and you needed special permission to get access to it in 40 years has shrunk down to a device that fits in your pocket that is a million times cheaper, a million times smaller, and a thousand times more powerful. Now, if that's not exponential progress, how does this change our possibilities to impact positively in the world? The tools to change the world are now in everybody's hands. The instruments, new construction kits for our reality are now in our pockets. The folks at Singularity University like to say that a young kid in rural Africa or Bali with a smartphone has better communications technology than a head of state had, than a president had 25 years ago. The tools to change the world are now in everybody's hands. You have more computational capacity, the aggregate of human creativity compressed into a device made of plastic and metal in your pocket 
than a president had 25 years ago. Stephen Johnson, in his book, Where Good Ideas Come From, A Natural History of Innovation, talks about this notion of the adjacent possible. Talk about envisioning your future. The adjacent possible is like a shadow from the future that hovers over the present, and it provides a map of all the ways in which the present can reinvent itself. This is my challenge to you guys today. Because these tools and technologies, they're stand-ins, they're metaphors, they are representative of human creativity, externalized and exteriorized. David Deutsch, in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, talks about how if you consider the topography of a modern city like Manhattan or Dubai, that's a physical topography where the forces of mind, creativity, human agency have trumped geology. Consciousness has trumped geology. That is not mere metaphor. If you could time-lapse human progress, it would literally look like we're shrinking the lag time between what we can imagine, what we can envision, and what we can create. Now that right there should be the anthem that you tap into when you wake up in the fucking morning because the opportunities for transformation and impact are, again, exponential. This has become, for me, a central organizing principle in my life because it means that we can address the grand challenges of humanity. Because we can imagine, said Paul Sartre, we are free. So I like to express these ideas via video and try to disseminate them in the interwebs. Memes, right? The new replicators. Ideas leap from brain to brain. They have infectivity. They have spreading power. And even though ideas are not made of nucleic acid, they have achieved more evolutionary change and at a rate that leaves the old gene panting far behind. So the first video I want to show you guys today is called To Be Human is to Be Transhuman. It's trying to humanize the idea of transhumanism. People tend to think of like the Terminator scenario or robots rising up against us, but we are our tools and our tools are us. When I think about transhumanity, I think about the human capacity, the consistent human pattern of overcoming our limitations and redrawing the boundaries of what we are. The coevolution of us and our tools is really just how we steer our own development. So in the back, if you could play the first video, to be human is to be transhuman. So there's a great line by Shakespeare in which he says, we know what we are, we know not what we may be. And in the age of accelerating technologies in which we extend the cognitive reach of our minds, the perimeters of our humanness with these extensions of self, these exoskeletons, these technological scaffoldings, you know, the wings of our aircrafts and the signals traveling through our smartphones, sending our thoughts electrified at the speed of light across oceans of sky. We redefine and extend what it means to be human. Edward O. Wilson says, we have actually decommissioned natural selection, and now we must look deep within ourselves and decide what we wish to become. We are now the chief agents of evolution. We have reversed engineered the software of biology and are about to rewire and upgrade and redefine what it is to be a homo sapien. Juan Enriquez uses the term homo evolutus, the being that evolves itself, that transforms itself, right? Ray Kurzweil, we didn't stay in the caves. We haven't stayed on the planet. Biology, just another membrane to be transcended. You know, Marvin Minsky used to say, will robots inherit the earth? Yes, they will, but they will be our children. You know, I love this idea because we hear the term transhumanism and what it means to be human is to be transhuman. We are the species that transforms and transcends. We never stopped, we always did. It's what we are. Thanks, guys. So, I've had the opportunity, the privilege, to travel around the world almost for six years now, speaking to companies and audiences about exponential change, about disruption, addressing people's fears and trying to infect them with some optimism as an antidote to the doom and gloom. Humans have this proclivity to think about the future in scary 
terms, right? The media feeds this back to us in this horrendous feedback loop where if it bleeds, it leads. But the truth is human progress is astounding. Human progress is continuing. For example, Steven Pinker in his great TED Talk, The Myth of Violence, and later explored in his book, The Better Angels of Our Demons, gives us just one example of how violence across the world has been declining for decades. You wouldn't tell from watching the news, but the chances of a human dying at the hands of another human today are the lowest than they've ever been in all of human history. The progress we have made is astounding and it's continuing. It just doesn't get enough attention. So I lecture people about this exponential progress in order to engage people to think about how we can use these tools to address challenges in an exponential speed. And people say, okay, fine. I get the idea of the 30 steps. I understand it. And I buy it because I've seen it. We've all seen the world change on the back of digital technology upending the planet. But then people will contest and say, what about the world of biology and the world of concrete? You know, in order to envision our future, we need to envision the future of the flesh and the future of the superstructures that we're building across the world. And it turns out that biology and material science are now becoming information technologies too. Software really is eating the world. And as biology and physical matter becomes information technology, it will be subject to the same exponential advancement. So let's start with biology. The buzzword of the day in Silicon Valley is biotechnology, synthetic biology. Biotechnology means mastering the information processes of biology because it turns out that we are made of code. Biology is a language. We are alphabetic all the way down. Our genes are little software programs. And we are increasingly acquiring the capacity to master and program and reprogram (laughs) the language of biology. I mean, just think about that for a second. Gene sequencing, as an example, the speed at which we can sequence our genes has been advancing three times faster than Moore's law, three times faster than these exponential numbers I was listing before. The eminent physicist Freeman Dyson, in a wonderful essay called The Age of Biology, envisions a near future where a new generation of artists will be writing genomes with the fluency that Blake and Byron wrote verses. And take that in for a second. Envision your future. Get out of your heads and your limiting beliefs. We're talking about a capacity to literally steer our own development, to reprogram our own biological language. Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine talks about how impoverished the world would be if we hadn't invented the technology of oil painting, because that's a technology, in time for Van Gogh or if we hadn't invented the technology of the musical instrument in time for Beethoven? What new genius is yet to be unfurled on the back of the technologies? When we can write poetry out of our genomes, what will we turn ourselves into? What kind of divinity can we engender? We already practice biotechnology through mate selection. When you choose somebody to have children with, You're looking for biological fitness, something that will mix well with your genes to create something new that's better. We're just increasing our capacity to steward this process. It's accelerating. Don't be afraid. Not to mention the capacity for biotechnology to eliminate human suffering, whether it's reverse engineering a mosquito so that it inoculates you against malaria instead of giving it to you whether it's radically extending the human lifespan so that we don't have to wither and rot, which is the existential fucking conundrum, the worm at the core, finite beings who dream of immortality, the explicit awareness that you're a breathing piece of defecating meat destined to die and ultimately no more significant than a lizard or a potato. It's not especially uplifting. With our minds, we can ponder the infinite, yet we're housed in these heart-pumping, breath-gasping, decaying bodies. I didn't sign up for this. Craig Venter, who created the first synthetic organism, an artificial life form, was asked, do you worry that you're playing God? And he answered brilliantly, I might add, who's playing? Envision your future. Larry Page from Google, founder of Google, recently created Calico, the California life extension company, a software company for biology. These guys get it. The cover story in Time Magazine, Google and the end of death, the end of cancer, the end of Alzheimer's, 
the end of the deterioration of the human spirit bounded by biology that has expired. I'm really fucking excited about biotechnology. <laughs> nanotechnology. Nanotechnology will allow us to pattern atoms the way we pattern ones and zeros in digital technology. So by moving around ones and zeros, that's given us the computer revolution. By moving around atoms, the physical world becomes a programmable medium. The seminal book on nanotechnology by Eric Drexler is called Engines of Creation. Engines of Creation. Like, lean into that. That's us on this moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam, as Carl Sagan used to say. This little fucking speck in the middle of the dark nothing. And yet this little fucking speck is about to engender its own divinity and infuse the cosmos with computation, with intelligence, with sentience. Nanotechnology already exists in the natural world. When you plant a seed and it turns into a tree, that seed is an information file. It's software that writes its own hardware. It has the instructions to self-organize into a tree. If it's allowed by the laws of physics, it cannot be unnatural. Get over this limiting belief that somehow our technological development and innovation is unnatural. Fuck that, guys. Like, if it's allowed by the laws of physics, if we're doing it, it's because it's natural. And that doesn't mean that it's always good. We have ethics. We have morals. That's fine. Technology is a double-edged sword. Can extend or it can amputate. Fire can cook our food. Cooking acted as an external prosthetic stomach that allowed us to make food more digestible, and it made the brain grow. So cooking made us human. But fire also meant burning the village of your enemy. Fire also means destruction on a massive scale. The alphabet, an information technology without which we wouldn't have poetry. I couldn't say I love you without the technology of language. But that same technology can be deployed by presidents to spread hate speech and fear. And the weaponization of social media, well, we've seen that with the rise of fake news. It doesn't mean it's always good. It means it can be good. It means it extends our capacity to output our imagination and our will. But it makes us ever more responsible for our fate. And these exponential advancements in biotechnology, nanotechnology, and of course the elephant in the room, artificial intelligence, the creation of intelligence in another substrate, not biological intelligence, but another kind of intelligence, not bounded by biology, one that can be upgraded the way you upgrade your smartphone every six to 12 months, the creation of non-biological minds, problem-solving cognition, problem-solving cognitive agents that don't have our limitations. Imagine the problems we can solve. Imagine the poetry we can create. Now, these three overlapping revolutions in Silicon Valley have forged a kind of mythological take on the future. You've probably heard the term singularity. Singularity is a metaphor, first and foremost, taken from physics. It's what happens when you go through a black hole. Laws of physics get all distorted and weird. Great metaphor to describe where we're heading. There have been singularities before. We've had Cambrian explosions of novelty before. The origin of language was one such singularity. If you draw a line in the sand, and you have here the hominids before language, and here the hominids after language, reciting poetry and singing songs and painting in the caves, and over here you have a bunch of monkeys like throwing feces at each other. Language was a singularity. Language is a tool which reveals to the mind what the mind thinks. It is responsible for our self-awareness. It radically upended the mind and created something new. We've had singularities. And we're about to embark on another one. And it's up to us to leverage these tools to build the kind of world we want to live in. We are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams, said Willy Wonka, didn't he? Let's envision this future. If you can please cue the next video, Future of Us. So let's talk about the future of us. What does that even mean, the future of us? It's a look at what comes next. It's a look at what might be. Because today, exponentially emerging technologies are transforming what's possible. They're helping us overcome, transcend even biological limitations. 
The very rules of what it is to be human are up for grabs. We're rewriting the software of life with biotechnology. We're turning matter into a programmable medium with nanotechnology. We're creating sentient minds with artificial intelligence that are not bound by the limitations of biology. These three overlapping revolutions, GNR, genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics, together will be leveraged to lead us towards a black hole-like, impossible-to-fathom singularity. It's like staring into the sun, a moment of a rousing symphonic climax when all of mind leverage the network together transcends its biological origins and we become something more. People worry about the AIs and the them. Well, as Kurzweil says, that's going to be us. The future of us is ours to dream up. You guys rock, by the way. <laughs> so we're about a third of the way into this story. I've painted a science fiction-esque future, but as Marshall McLuhan used to say, it's always been the artist who realizes that the future is the present and uses his work to prepare the grounds for it. So this is all coming, but it means nothing unless we deploy these tools in the right way, unless we use these tools to extend compassion, to extend our hands to one another, to address the grand challenges of humanity, to spread kindness and generosity and love. The rising tide must lift all ships. Now, a while back, I came across this meme put out by... The folks at Singularity University, Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis, and others, techno-optimists of the highest order. And they decided to take this notion of messaging for the exponential age as we envision the future and we envision each of our own desires for impact and transformation. How about we redefine the term billionaire? Because one of the sort of incidental cool side effects of this exponential age, especially among young people, is they all want to be the next billionaire. They're like, I want to start a company and be like Mark Zuckerberg. Like, how cool to aspire to, like, become that successful, you know? It's not, I want to be a cowboy when I grow up, you know? It's like, I want to come up with an algorithm that impacts a billion lives. Cool, become a billionaire. Great. But what if we redefine the definition? And we say being a billionaire is not making a billion dollars. That's incidental. That's a side effect. That's just the icing on the cake. Cool. Buy yourself a jet. Love it. Make sure it's an environmentally friendly one. But what if in the age of exponential technologies, being a billionaire means positively impacting a billion lives? You know? And that's a beautiful thing, right? It's like... Duh, right? Like bumper sticker, fucking put it on the front of your wall. Like, yes, positively impacting a billion lives. And the thing is, I've now given you the understanding, I hope, that this is not a lofty goal, that this is possible, that this is doable, that each and every one of you, when looking in the mirror, when you have that faint disquiet late at night, when you haven't slept and you're anxious and you don't know what your purpose is or you think you might not be able to have enough of an impact, think exponentially. Understand that it's not just metaphysical, lofty, spiritual bumper sticker lingo, although that's all good too, but this is all grounded in tangible fact. Also, it's both. It's poetic truth built on data-driven extrapolations. So it ticks both boxes, guys. It's a soulful call to arms. Heed the call, impact a billion lives. But it's actually possible. The tools are there. You can take action. Don't just stay at home like reading The Secret and hoping for a transformation. Like, <laughs> go do it. So this next video was shot with a smartphone. And the key idea was to show that, hey, the tools in your pocket can be used to spread stories. Like, if you're a musician, like, make a song on your phone. If you're a filmmaker, like, make a film on your phone. Like, the fact that we have the tools in our hands, like, we should use them. We show that it's possible. So we shot this video with a smartphone, and it's called The Captains of Spaceship Earth. And that's a Bucky Fuller line, right? We are all captains of Spaceship Earth. So it celebrates this notion that we must take responsibility to positively touch a billion lives. So if you can cue captains of Spaceship Earth, please. We live in a world of exponential technological advancement. 
What this literally means is that we have new construction kits for our reality, new tools with which to probe at the adjacent possible. So consider the implications, right? As Marshall McLuhan used to say, first we build the tools, and then the tools build us. We are designed by what we have designed. There are these feedback loops of mind, tool, and world that radically redefine our boundaries, that radically transform what it means to be human. To be human today is to crisscross the skies. To be human today is to create techno-social wormholes, mind-to-mind communication that overcomes the limits of time, space, and distance. And so what do we do? Well, we need to radically reach out to one another in ways that we haven't before. There's a great line that says, Empathy rarely extends beyond our line of sight. In other words, if it's out of sight, it is out of mind. But if anything, these wireless communication technologies are radically extending our line of sight. They're providing new ontological maps of the real. They're giving us the astronaut overview effect. We are seeing the big picture. We are seeing that we are the captains of spaceship Earth. And what shall we do? We need to extend our hands to one another. We've never had such tools to overcome all of the limitations of our humanity. We have the power, we have the will, we have the capacity, the creative capacity to overcome our limits. So today, billions of us linking to one another, creating a global node, a global brain. What is the new definition of billionaire? The new definition of billionaire is he who will positively affect the lives of a billion people. He or she will reach out and say, I will positively affect the lives of a billion people. This should be our goal. This is our responsibility. Here's our chance. Thanks, guys. So we've talked about innovation. We've talked about creativity. We've talked about imagination. We've talked about envisioning our future. But there is one other thing that gets in our way ourselves. So I have also a keen interest in mental health, because in spite of our radical progress, and there has been radical progress, we are also living in a time of unprecedented mental distress. We have anxiety and depression at epidemic levels. We have suicide numbers on the rise. We have people feeling trapped in a kind of psychosis of excessive rumination Excessive rumination, what Jamie Wheel calls the cul-de-sacs and error messages of a brain that has become too ordered. Michael Pollan in his book, How to Change Your Mind, for example, talks about deploying psychedelics, technologies of ecstasy to amend brains that have become too ordered, too structured, that have become trapped by an ego that has become overactive, the powerful tyrant right? This is a huge fucking deal, and we need a revolution in mental health to address it. Some of the most exciting research happening right now has been stewarded by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mr. Rick Goblin at the helm there has actually convinced the FDA to allow them to do stage three breakthrough therapy designations for using MDMA to treat people who have post-traumatic stress disorder of the highest level that has not been amenable to conventional medication. And the results that they've gotten are something like an 80% success rate. People who take the MDMA in these controlled guided environments no longer meet the criteria for PTSD after just one or two sessions. Johns Hopkins University is doing the same with psilocybin, the active ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms. Two therapists in the room carefully screened patients who have depression that has not responded to conventional medications, have a singular mystical experience while under the mushrooms, and they are absolved of their ills, and their status checked six months later, 12 months later, and still free of depression, free of anxiety. We're on the cusp of a revolution in designing better minds, Now, look, it's not just about disintegrating the ego. Michael Pollan says the ego got the book written. You You need agency. You need will. You need ego. But an ego can become metastasized. When you think you know it all, when you're jaded, when you're cynical, when you're trapped by these cul-de-sacs and error messages, by the inner critic that has become overactive, by the traumas of your past that you can't let go of, by the stories because we are autobiographical beings, right? We are storytelling animals. But when our stories, 
when the stories that you tell yourself about yourself are no longer serving you, that's the beginning of a personal crisis. It's time to change the story. So I've developed a keen interest in altered states of consciousness and how the mediation of consciousness can be used to lead us towards breakthroughs of the self, cathartic illumination, enlightenment. Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel wrote a seminal book on the topic called Stealing Fire. That's another assigned reading list. Wonderful book about the altered states economy, the length that people will go to change their perception, to change their cognition, to see things a little bit more clearly. Michael Pollan said it brilliantly. He says that the brain is essentially like an artificial intelligence program. It takes in data from the present, compares it with data from the past, and uses it to make predictions about the future. And it does this automatically all the time. And so our baseline is a default of low-level anxiety, <laughs> a consistent future tense, very rarely in the present. See, on the one hand, this capacity to imagine our future, to leave the present and imagine what might be is a gift, but it can also be a curse when it robs us of ever being in the moment and never smelling the flowers. Because if we can't see the world in a grain of sand or heaven in a wildflower, if we can't hold infinity in the palm of our hands, if we can't hold eternity in an hour, like Blake said, then what the fuck are we building anything for? Because you know, if we're never here to enjoy any of it, damn. So this is big. Consciousness is a new space for exploration. So Michael Pollan says that one of the things that commends intense experiences, transformational experiences, psychedelic experiences, even travel and beauty and love, is that these kinds of experiences, they block all signals forwards and backwards. They get you out of thinking always of the future and out of always ruminating from the past and instead hurl you into the flow of the present that is literally wonderful. Wonder being the byproduct of exactly that sense of unencumbered first sight or virginal noticing to which the adult brain has closed itself. So you get to see the world as if through the eyes of a child. You open yourself up to the miraculous once more, and that's intoxicating. And this notion of flow, this is perhaps the greatest state of consciousness to aspire to. So for those that don't know, flow is a state of consciousness in which you feel your best and you perform your best. It's ecstatic. It's characterized by a sense of selflessness when you're in the zone, when you're in the pocket, when you're the jazz musician who's tapped into the perfect space, right? When you're in flow, your sense of self vanishes. The inner chatter disappears and you experience that as liberation. You're free from the monkey mind. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is responsible for the constant self-editing that constantly gets in our way, right? They people say, get out of your own way. Everything you want is on the other side of fear. Stop second guessing yourself. Well, when you're in flow, that immediately goes quiet. Your sense of time disappears. So you're free from the tyranny of time. You're free from the tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock that everything is passing. You're in forever now. It's intoxicating. There's the sense of effortlessness, right? When you're in flow, you don't feel the labor. Everything is just flowing, whether it's your creativity or your work or your relationship, it's just flowing. You're surfing that wave and it's magnificent. And there's a sense of richness. You get more information. You process more data. You get more insights. You're more resilient. You're optimized. The seminal writer on flow, his name's Csikszentmihalyi, wrote a book on the subject. He called it Beyond Boredom and Anxiety. See, the problem with human beings is we tend to oscillate between boredom and anxiety, but there is this state beyond, and you know it when you're there. I feel it sometimes when I give my talks. I know you feel it when you sing your favorite songs, or when you make love with somebody you really have chemistry with. You're in flow. You're playing that instrument. You lose all sense of self, all sense of time. Everything is awesome. You feel the pull of now. You feel the pull of purpose. You're tapped into your passion. So flow is huge. So we can't build these tools, we can't architect this future, we can't envision all these possibilities unless we figure out how to harness our minds now, today. Because mental health is a real big fucking deal. So this next video talks a little bit about flow and what it feels like. Please show. People talk about happiness. Certainly the self-help section in the bookstore is full of books telling you how to tap into that happiness, how to be happy, how to think and grow rich, so on and so forth. But what I think is ultimately more interesting, my friends, is those states north of happy. Now, Jamie Wheel, Stephen Collar are the co-founders of the Flow Genome Project. And the Flow Genome Project aims to deconstruct 
the elusive and mystical flow state. Now, in the field of positive psychology, a flow state is a state of consciousness in which you feel your best and you perform your best. Think of the athlete in the zone. Think of the jazz musician in the pocket. Think of the surfer catching that perfect wave. And these states of consciousness in which you feel your best and you perform your best are characterized by the acronym STIR, which stands for selflessness, the self vanishes, timelessness, your sense of time dilates and dissipates, effortlessness, the activity just kind of flows magically, and information richness, there's this feeling of a high-res download of realization and possibility that seems to kind of emerge from the world around you. So again, selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and information richness is a kind of like high-definition reality in slow-mo. And these states of consciousness have always been elusive. They're kind of like quasi-mystical states of ecstasy, says the Greek described them. And so Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler's new book, Stealing Fire, alluding of course to Prometheus who stole fire from the gods, is about the fact that finally for the first time in history, ecstasis is understandable. Ecstasis is reproducible. Flow can be had on tap. Ask not what the world needs. Ask instead what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And this book, Stealing Fire, is going to bring that to you folks. I'm very excited. I love Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler. Flow Genome Project. Mystical states on tap for everyone. Let's democratize nirvana. Let's democratize ecstasis. And let's upgrade the world. Just a little end note on that notion. I remember my buddy Jamie Wheel, who wrote that book, had given a TEDx talk at Burning Man. It was called From Altered States to Altered Traits, Hacking the Flow State. And it was a beautiful notion because he basically described our self-systems as kind of colanders. Like we're like these leaky buckets. And so we need this constant flow to be poured in because otherwise we're just bleeding and then we go back into ourselves and we're like, fuck, like what happened? I had an exaltating moment yesterday. Now I'm bummed, you know? And so he says we become bliss junkies. We get hooked on the state instead of raising the stage. And so he proposes through the work in the Flow Genome Project, it's a multidisciplinary approach to figuring out what they call the four forces of ecstasy, psychology, technology, neurobiology, and pharmacology. So it's bringing it all together because all of these fields are advancing all the time, right? Psychology, technology, neurobiology, and pharmacology, the four forces of ecstasy that are allowing us to look underneath the hood and figure out the cycles of flow, how it works, get a better understanding of what are the flow triggers and how we can optimize to have more flow more often. The work of the Neurohacker Collective does a lot of this same research as well. And the key idea then is if we could change our self-systems from leaky buckets into chalices. How might we render ourselves whole? And how might we render ourselves holy? And so this is what we can aspire to. So in my closing thoughts now, I'd like to talk about the subject of awe. In the introduction, Mia so kindly referred to the fact that my YouTube channel is called Shots of Awe. And that's pretty much because for me, awe is the holy grail. Awe is the mindgasm. Awe is cognitive ecstasy. You know, Carl Sagan used to say, understanding is a kind of ecstasy. Awe is revelation. Awe is mystical rapture. Awe is the cosmic download. Awe is an exhilarating neurostorm of intense intellectual pleasure. Awe is what the French call frisson, right? The skin orgasm, when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, when you're exposed to a beautiful song or a beautiful smile, or you see yourself reflected in the eyes of a lover, or a movie scene lifts you up and carries you away to somewhere better. And it turns out that there's been all this research in positive psychology on the subject of awe and wonder. Researchers at Berkeley and Stanford, they described awe as an experience, again, of such perceptual vastness, such perceptual expansion, that the mental models of the world that we normally rely upon, those algorithms, that autopilot, that allows us to get through the day, are forced to accommodate themselves to new data, 
So all of a sudden, the been there's and seen that's of the adult mind get obliterated. And it can be whether it's exposure to like the Grand Canyon for the first time or the birth of a child or an MDMA experience or sex for the first time. Like an experience basically of awe, it jolts you. It cracks you open. It lets in the light. Whereas once I was blind, now I can see. It's also been described as opiated adjacency. It's what it's all about. But it turns out that these experiences of awe, of course, they're transitory enchanted moments. F. Scott Fitzgerald talked about this when he talked about when humans from Europe went to the new world for the first time and the feeling of awe they must have felt when they saw this like virgin land, supposedly, right? What they did afterwards, of course, was horrible. But that first moment of just seeing this thing, I mean, it's like, when was the last time? We, that was the last moment, short of us making a starship and going to a new planet. That feeling of awe and wonder, transitory enchanted moment in which man must have held his breath, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face, perhaps for the last time in history, with something commensurate to our capacity for wonder. Like, fucking A, like that's awe. And so even though it's a transitory experience, after the awe passes, like after the awe, you're left with an afterglow of increased feelings of well-being, increased feelings of compassion, and increased feelings of creativity. Not to mention it acts as an anti-inflammatory on your organism and on your body. So blowing your own mind is good for you. It's medicinal. It's therapeutic. Yeah. So imagine what we could do with virtual reality modules in combination with like legal cannabis, putting people in like awe machines, you know? making people have mind orgasms, like once a week, I'm going to my mind orgasm, like I'll see you later. Like the future of our well-being could be so magnificent. We could transcend ourselves, we could overcome the ego, could heal ourselves of our fractures or learn to reframe those fractures and love them instead. So this is the last video I wanna leave you with and it's about ritualized surrender. It's about submitting to awe. Because if you cannot submit, you cannot die. And if you cannot die, you cannot be reborn. Let's talk a little bit about experiences of ritualized surrender, right? Psychologists often tell us that it is in the act of letting go that you find out who you are. The prospect of ego death, however, the prospect of any kind of ritualized surrender feels like dying, but only to those who resist it. Those who eventually come to realize that there is no such thing as death, at least that psychological dying into the moment is but an illusion, the last hurrah, the last resistance before you hurl yourself into the abyss and realize that it's a feather bed. You know, Terrence McKenna talked about this. He said, this is the secret. This is what all the the shamans, the professors, the wise men, this is what they understood. This is the alchemical goal. This is how magic is done. You hurl yourself into the abyss and you realize that it's a feather bed. Our society today is constructed, we know this, in a way where many people are afflicted with a pathological amount of anxiety and depression. It's what Jamie Wheel calls 21st century normal, this fibrillating anxious state from an overactive ego stemming from a misfiring default mode network, which is the autobiographical mind, which is essentially metastasized into something that is a kind of autoimmune disorder of the self and the excessive rumination and self-consciousness that characterizes depression and anxiety both come from a mind that has become too ordered, too rigid, too hypervigilant. It's like we're all living with a perpetual micro PTSD. And what the research tells us, and this has informed so much of my creative life, what the research now tells us is that in safe containers and with the proper precautions deployed, the experience of ecstatic surrender, the experience of ego death, what Jamie Wheel calls the bliss fuck crucifixion, is actually where all the healing is done, right? It is when you die into the moment that you realize that all your fears are unfounded. You come to see that everything you want is on the other side of fear, right? It's like that David Fincher movie, The Game, reveals to us in that line that says, quoting the Bible, John chapter 12, verse something, whereas once I was blind, now I can see. 
It is hard to put language to these instances of ecstatic surrender, right? Hurling yourself into the abyss and realizing that it's a feather bed arrives you at a domain that exists outside of time. The self experiences this as liberation from the incessant inner chatter. We are free to be ourselves. We become infinite is what it feels like. Transitory enchanted moments in which we hold our breath. <sighs> Compelled into aesthetic contemplations we neither understand nor perhaps even desire. Face to face with something commensurate to our capacity for wonder. We experience afresh the hardly bearable ecstasy of direct energy exploding in our nerve endings. We recontextualize the self as a marvelous conduit in a timeless whole from which molecules and meanings flow from neurons to nebula and back again. We see the world in a grain of sand and we see heaven in a wild flower. We hold infinity in the palms of our hand. We hold eternity. then the moment will pass <laughs> and all contradictions are reconciled man has surpassed the gods and what do we find after these enchanted moments what do we find after these moments of opiated adjacency when we spill over when we overflow when we are cracked open so that the light gets in we find that people report increased feelings of well-being in their baseline reality, increased feelings of compassion, increased feelings of creativity, increased feelings of joy, a sense of having glimpsed noetic truth, a sense of having tapped into the infinite, a feeling of communion with the cosmos, an ontological awakening, a spiritual experience, a forceful reckoning with what is a mainlining of space and time through the optic nerve. We become what we behold, and we behold the infinite. Miguel de Unamuno wrote in Tragic Sense of Life, Eternity, Eternity, nothing is real that is not eternal. So the question remains, right? We know the way, we know the path, we know what we must do to heal ourselves. How might we turn our passing illuminations into abiding light? How might we turn our self-systems from leaky buckets, right? Colanders full of holes into chalices, said Jamie Wheel. How might we render ourselves whole? How might we render ourselves holy? This has become the central preoccupation of my life. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.